This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the nuts and bolts of the economics of immigration policy. We'll start out by hearing why we so frequently hear immigration brought up as an explanation for any economic woes we may be facing. We'll hear arguments for and against protectionist rhetoric regarding immigration. We'll hear arguments for solidarity across racial lines to fight for immigration policies that are fair to all. And we'll hear some of the historical context for the accelerating global movement of immigrants and refugees. Make sure you don't miss that one. Our clips today come from Economic Update, The Other Washington, On the Media, Sunday Civics, and Intercepted. Let's dive in to the issue of immigration, and I think it's appropriate to talk to you about the, immig- uh, the issue of immigration. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has issued new guidelines uh, that will uh, extend what it means to commit a crime. Basically, to it would mean if, even if you were here as an undocumented person, that would be a crime, right? Uh, expedited removal. Uh, it'll expand that for, for people who have been here for two years or uh, under, which, you know, so some serious questions. I'm sure there'll be some legal challenge concerning people's rights to a, what the writ of a habeas corpus. Uh, but I think it's very appropriate to talk to you about this, Richard Wolf, in part because this is actually the way Donald Trump uh, formulates it, a part of his economic plan. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is to remind everyone of history. Leaders who suddenly decide that the great economic problem of their era is immigrants, this is as old a ploy in politics as there is. You can find it thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, in every corner of the world. Beating up on immigrants who tend to be poor people, driven either by economic essential crisis or by political intolerable conditions. So these are poor, hunted people who search for a way to live. And to turn on them is the sort of cheap political gambit that leaders have endlessly resorted to because it's an easy way out. It distracts people from all the suffering they feel and has someone convenient to blame. Here in the United States, we have had a growing inequality of income for 40 years without interruption. To blame this on immigrants is ridiculous, silly, has no warrant whatsoever. Well, well, let's get into that because the argument is is that undocumented uh, immigrants who work here lower lower wages in general. Sure. These are one of these wonderful stories. If you have immigrants coming into the United States, other things equal, 
Yes, and they're desperate. And yes, if they're desperate, they offer to work for less money. And the employer sees an opportunity because an undocumented immigrant is someone you can forget to pay on Friday who dare not go to the police. Yeah, you can see the opportunities for a corrupt abuse of all kinds of labor laws in the country. And does that happen? Yes, it happens. But let's keep a perspective. We are a country of 330 million people. And we're talking about illegal immigrants who number 10 or 20 million out of 330. So before you do any wild hallucinations about the impact of 20, 10 to 20 million on an economy of 330 million. Keep your perspective. Otherwise, you're going to be susceptible to manipulators who turn a situation that affects a small number of people and use it to explain an enormous economic uh, situation. Number one. Number two. Why are people coming here? There's a wonderful notion that this is some kind of lark, that this is some kind of adventure. People do not leave the places they were born in, the languages they know how to speak, the neighbors and relatives with whom they live their lives, the cultural institutions, the churches, the schools where their children are going, where they were baptized, whatever it is, they don't do that easily. Let me put myself on the line here. My parents were refugee immigrants to the United States. So I admit I have a special feeling for this since it's my own personal history. But my parents, who came from France and Germany, would never have come to the United States if they had not been forced literally to run for their lives. Uh, they didn't want well, to do that. What were they running from? The Second World War, basically. Yeah. Nazism, fascism, Hitler, all of that. Uh, and, it, and because the war was fought on the borders, really, between France and Germany, if not inside those countries, they had to leave or else they would be caught literally in the crossfire. So they came to the United States and they, because they wanted to, to survive. Uh, now, it might be said that the United States has some role to play in this. It would be very hard to argue that it wasn't. Most of the people we're talking about now either come from Latin America, that's the overwhelming majority, or now increasingly from other parts of the world. But it's easy to show that the economic development of these other parts of the world has been impacted by the activities of American corporations aided by the American government that turned their local societies into operations to make a great deal of wealth for a very small number of people producing coffee or sugar or cheap manufacturers for delivery to the United States. In other words, the economic and political conditions in those societies are also the result of the United States. We are not some innocent bystander suffering an influx of people whom we have no relationship to until they arrive. Th that might be a convenient way of understanding it, but it makes no economic or uh, historical sense. So if you have even the smallest sense of compassion, but also of responsibility for all of this, then you see migration for what it is. It's a failure of the system. If capitalism had developed more evenly, shared some of the wealth it was able to produce with the people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America who did a lot of the work. How easy would that be oh, to that do would... that? Is that so easy? I mean, it sounds good. 
I like it. I'm for it. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Americans actually already understand this a little bit. Here's a little microcosm. You can go to a, a place and buy a pound of coffee. Or you can go to a, another store and buy a pound of something called fair-traded coffee. And the whole idea of fair trade is you pay a few pennies more per pound of the coffee, and then you make sure that the guy who grows the coffee in Colombia or wherever it is gets a better price than could be squeezed out of him or her by the normal mechanisms of trade. Well, come on. We're able to do that. We could do that across the board. And if we did, and if we also made the effort to say, hey, in your society, the distribution of wealth is so crazy, so unequal, that you're creating misery for masses of people who don't even need to have that misery, and we would be interested in helping you out of the self-interest that we don't want an influx, this wouldn't be that hard to sell to the American people at all. And But the effort has to be made. And the effort wasn't made. Let's be real honest. The flow of immigrants to this country is based on the notion, I can get a job. And the people who dispense jobs for immigrants in this society are capitalist employers who want that opportunity because those people are cheap to employ. The same logic that led some businesses to go abroad to take advantage of cheap labor leads other businesses who can't go abroad to bring the labor, the cheap labor here. If you're growing Crops in ca in California, you need cheap right. labor here. You're not going to export that. That's right. Yeah. And if you need someone to do the dishes in the restaurant and to do all that kind of work that can't be exported, well, then you got to bring the cheap labor here. And hence the argument, though, we got to stop people who are willing to work for that cheap labor from coming here so that those jobs would be available for Americans. Well, that could be an argument, but that only means that you've accepted the notion that we have to persuade businesses to behave in a decent way. The alternative is to say... So we're punishing the worker. That's right. Yeah. Why not say, look, you're the employer. You have a a choice to make. You want to employ an immigrant, that's fine, but you can't do it at subhuman conditions. You can't do that, and if you start to do that, we will really intervene and stop. That might mean for the immigrant that they can't come here because they won't hire them, but my guess is they probably would because they could get still advantages out of the desperation of those folks to make it in a new country, to work very hard, to avoid having to go back to what they came from, etc. But there are always multiple ways of solving a problem. Here what we've done is said, capitalists, you want to make a lot of money? Here, hire undocumented immigrants. Do it for 30 years. Then when the mass of local native people get so angry they won't let you anymore, okay, then we'll throw them out hmm. and by the way the incentive will be if you throw them back out and if they're all gathered in mexico or central america american companies will discover that they're willing to work there for next to nothing because that's the situation you're building so they will have a greater in incentive to leave the very thing that we complained about under globalization companies leaving is being incentivized by the expulsion of immigrants. And if you shut that off, you say your immigrant can't come here and products produced abroad can't come here, then you're going to create in the United States the need for corporations to hire only domestic Americans. That will drive up the wage. 
And what does that do in capitalism? It leads to what we call automation. You've created an incentive by rising wages to substitute robots and computers and machines. The problem is the system. The worker is going to get the short end of the stick, whether it be by immigration, whether it be by relocating facilities out of the country, or by automating. And until you take this situation in hand and realize it's a system that works this way, all you're going to be doing is going from one way of getting screwed to another. You're not dealing with the system that's screwing you. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna completely forget her name. I think it's uh, Gabriela Garcia. Um, as she's a woman in Arizona, um, to like both your guys' specific points. Um, she was, uh, like myself, in deportation hearings. Our cases were administratively closed uh, during the Obama era, right? He sort of administratively closed a bunch of cases because the, the courts are so backed up. You know, non-priority cases got put at the bottom of the list and just like to sort of clear clear the system. Well, it's not a great use of government money. Exactly, exactly. You know, if you're if you're if you haven't committed a crime, um, uh, I think it's a if you haven't committed a felony, uh, and uh, you know you pay taxes and you kind of demonstrate that you're a contributing person in in America. American society, like you, you're not at risk. So let's just like deal with you like much, much later. Um, and that's a weird place to be in, but it's certainly better than, you know, being deported. Uh, but she, part of her terms, uh, were that she would go in and check with, uh, Homeland Security periodically just to say uh, kind of a parole, if you will, right? Like I still live here. I still work here. Like, you know, she has three kids, I think, who were born here. Um, and she went in for her regular checkup. And this happened like days before my deportation hearing, too. So it was like and within the week that he signed the uh, Trump signed the executive orders about um, uh, uh, what is it? The ban travel ban. Also, it was just like really fraught oh, week. But um, she went in for a regular checkup. And uh, the moment she sort of signed her name, they put handcuffs on her, like with her family outside the door and a bunch of people who were just kind of watching like they're in support. Like, and she knew she just fully knew going into that, like, there's a real possibility that I'm not going to walk out those doors after I walk in. And sure enough, like, that's what happened. Um, and like, what does that achieve? You now have kids in custody of the state, which is a draw on tax dollars. Mm-hmm. You have the expense. I think of she. I think she's married. Is she but, okay? Yeah. But like. But that's what happens, right? Yeah, that's what happens. You end up with you end more up with dependency. people now who are yeah who are and who are costing more than mm-hmm. I think I saw a figure that uh, immigrants in the United States pay something like five billion dollars a year in taxes or something. It's some like outrageous oh. number. Yeah, uh, immigrant. Well, oh, oh, you mean immigrants are an important part of the American economy? Yeah, really interesting. <laughs> Boy, that's that's so strange. Well, and that's I think that's a really good thing to point to too. I I was on a bit of a tweet storm recently because I was um I just saw so many people who were talking about like, well, my parents came here legally, so why don't you just do the same? And it's like immigration in the United States has long been used as a tool of racism. Like, that's it. Like, it is a weapon of racism. It was with the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was when they determined that uh you know. African-Americans who had been brought here and who had lived here for years could not be naturalized until like 1870. Like a hundred years later, they could not be naturalized, right? And 
this idea that that if you uh, make it harder for people to report crimes, then you, you're making a lawless government. In the same way, when you make it hard to immigrate, you are making it more likely for people to live outside the law. Right. And, and that means you're driving down wages because these people yeah. are working for lower wages, which drives down the rest of our or wages. Or they're working under the table, which means they're not paying right. their income tax exactly. in states that have them. If, yep. or but, they're, but, but, but let's be clear economically – um, and, and these statistics are clear, not just in the U.S., but across the world. Immigrants start more businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those businesses hire more people. Immigrants file more patents. When you look at the American economy, you look at Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and you see these companies, who's, who's founding them, who's leading them, who's doing much of the tech. These are immigrants right. who are creating companies like, uh, like Google. Yeah. Right. Well, you don't even have to look to Silicon Valley. You can look here in Seattle. I mean, one of the things that's, that the travel ban indicated was a bunch of Amazon employees got held up because they have HB visas, right? right? And so like a lot of Seattle's growth that we're seeing now, and these are people who are buying property for large amounts of money, who are paying sales tax when they buy all their stuff, when they buy their flipping Teslas and shit. Mm-hmm. Like these are people who are paying hugely into the tax base and, you know, they have maybe they're here on a work. Isn't it true that most people who are undocumented in the United States, they came legally and then like their visa expired or but they most people are cool. not are not crossing the right. You know, right. Swimming the across the river. Yeah. They are they are arriving. Right. They're flying in and they're yeah. arriving on and going uh, through customs. On, yeah. Right. Yeah. Education, to, tourist work visas and then just yeah. overstaying. Yeah. To your point about like um, this immigration fight sort of being the nexus of like race in America. Right. I think like part of why there's so much anxiety on frankly both sides of the argument right is that we're at the tipping point where where over 50 percent of american children are brown yeah right and so like there is this real um you know the browning of america meets like a majority or at least a plurality of immigrants being brown you see that you know they're coming from mexico um they're coming from syria Mm -hmm. um most of these h1 Mm -hmm. (laughs) work visa Mm -hmm. uh, people are you know again, brown immigrants. Um, and so there's like a very real bad guy, yeah. right, in this uh, in this fight. You know, a funny story is, though, um, the United States did not used to be a country of white people. What? I know that this is shocking what? to you. <laughs> this idea that, that the browning of America is somehow necessarily... You mean a Christopher Columbus thing. didn't just show up and was like and America sailed the ocean blue and then found a bunch of wasps right. and was just like hello fellow Protestants <laughs> I adore your critter pants let us eat macaroni and cheese no that's not what happened you mean it wasn't just always a land of Puritans it was not uh, I oh know. come on it was manifest destiny right yeah so I think I just think it's very important when we talk about you know this um, we talk about sanctuary cities or welcoming cities mm-hmm. to like to discuss all of this and all of the bigger parts because it's not just because it like it feels good and it's right. like right. So so that brings back to the symbolism of being a welcoming city or a welcoming state. Um, I d- just ask you, would you feel comfortable with your current status? You know, if you were offered a great job in Phoenix, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Uh, it'd have to be a really killer job. <laughs> um, I no, I mean like I wouldn't want no, I wouldn't want to live in a place where my day-to-day existence was um a threat <laughs> to my existential one, right? Right, right? right. So this gives cities like Seattle a competitive advantage right. uh economically because we can attract the best and the brightest regardless of their immigration status and they're contributing to our economy here 
and they're making our businesses stronger. And uh, they're a big part of why Seattle is growing so much faster than the rest of the country. It should be said, though, that there's a the culture of fear is what they want, right? They mm -hmm. want people uh, to look at Arizona and think, I don't want to move there because, you know, they're, they're not right. looking to increase ICE staffing by 5,000% or anything. Yeah. They just want to scare people. But, and it's working, right? And it's I think working. That, yeah, there's a, like the the numbers in terms of immigrants over the last several months, um, they're much lower than they historically have been. Right. Right. Year over year, uh, it's declined. Uh, uh, I forget the specific number, but it's working. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, but, he's but, mucking up the waters. It's kind but, of like what Mitt Romney was talking about when he was talking about self-deportation, isn't it? <laughs> sort of. But, but, right. yeah. but, you know, also Trump's immigration policies... Uh, part of the goal is to punish blue cities like Seattle yes. and San Francisco. Correct. This is an attack not just on our people and our values, but on our economy. Yeah. Because we did not vote for him. We have often observed on this program how the GOP can take any event or presidential policy, no matter how antithetical to longstanding conservative doctrine, and embrace it as if it were an immutable expression of Republican philosophy. But Republicans do not have a monopoly on the politics of convenience. When it comes to the immigration debate, says political scientist Peter Beinart, Democrats are ignoring certain economic data, past positions, and long-standing allegiances. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. In promoting the benefits of immigration, lawful and otherwise, what are liberals suddenly leaving out? As the Republican Party has become increasingly nativist, I think the Democrats have lost the language that they once had about some of the costs that immigration brings. I say this as someone who's a supporter of a pretty liberal immigration policy, but I don't think you're going to win political support for it unless you acknowledge some of the strains that especially low-wage immigration can produce. But it wasn't long ago that the debate on the left was significantly more nuanced. And I'm not talking about fringe critics. You've name-checked some bold-faced names. Right. So if you look about a decade ago, you can find writing by New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, for instance, where he says that immigration places liberal principles in conflict because it can put downward pressure on wages of lower-skilled Americans. Barack Obama, in The Audacity of Hope, talks a bit about the legitimacy of some degree of cultural anxiety about bringing in people who don't speak English, for instance. Bernie Sanders, you know, as recently as the beginning of his presidential run, basically says that he's concerned that too much low-skilled immigration will bring down wages. He says that the Koch brothers are the kinds of folks that want a lot of low-skilled immigration and that it actually would hurt American workers. So there's been a pretty dramatic shift on the left towards a very pro-immigration view. And I myself am sympathetic to a lot of that. But I think that what has been lost is some recognition of the political and economic and cultural challenges that immigration brings, especially to the kind of society that liberals want. 
you wrote in your piece that progressive commentators routinely claim that there's a near consensus among economists on immigration's benefits. Consensus, you say, not necessarily. I think most economists would say that overall, immigration benefits the U.S. economy. But there's a real debate about what the impact is on lower-skilled workers, whether jobs that low-skilled immigrants do are the same jobs that native-born Americans might do, or whether sometimes in subtle ways, the jobs are actually different. There are very serious, well-regarded economists on both sides of that question. But I think as it gets translated into the journalistic and political discussion by liberals, there's a tendency to downplay the views of those economists who do think there may be some costs to low-skilled American workers of bringing in an immigrant population that has a lot of low-skilled workers. So you're suggesting, look, we can have this debate, but don't pretend there aren't winners and losers. Now, we know there are stagnant wages, right? Do we know that it is immigration that is the significant force there? Too much supply in the labor pool, or is it other issues like the export of high-wage manufacturing jobs abroad. I don't think many economists would say that immigration is the major factor in that. There are a whole series of other factors that have to do with changes in the economy that probably play a larger role. But I think the point that you made is really the critical point, which is that immigration creates winners and losers. Instead of sometimes, I think, ending up in the situation where Democrats and liberals don't talk about the losers and therefore seem kind of blind to the anxieties that other Americans feel or kind of dismissive of them, what the Trump campaign has exposed is that there is more anxiety about immigration than perhaps liberals had recognized. And while I think it's absolutely fair to characterize some of that as ugly and racist, just calling it ugly and racist isn't enough as a political response. One of the challenges that liberals have to face is there's good data from, for instance, the Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam that as societies become more diverse, more religiously, more racially, more ethnically diverse, it becomes harder to maintain the social solidarity that you need to redistribute wealth, to deal with economic inequality. There's a reason that very homogenous societies like the Scandinavian societies have traditionally had the biggest welfare states. Diversity is absolutely a good, which is helping America tremendously. But asking people to redistribute wealth to people who are not like them is always a very, very significant challenge. And I think liberals have to be more open about talking about the tension between these desires that we have. It's hard to thread the needle, though, politically. You were talking about Bernie Sanders' assertion that an influx of low-wage immigrants is just what the Koch brothers are trying to achieve. He got slapped down for that and ended up having his own views <laughs> evolve on the subject. They seem right. to be damned if they do, damned if they don't. One of the questions that I think the Trump administration has really put front and center in American politics is the question of the obligations that we have to our fellow Americans versus our obligations to 
people in other parts of the world. And Trump and Bannon have made a very, very, very hard distinction that essentially we have almost no obligations to anyone outside of America's shores. I think that's totally wrong. I think America has really strong moral obligations. But we also have to recognize, and this is what Sanders was acknowledging, and I think people like him should be able to continue to acknowledge this, that sometimes our moral obligations to vulnerable and poor outside of America's borders can come into conflict with our obligation to the vulnerable and poor inside America's borders. It seems to me at the heart of this may be yet another more structural, more fundamental conflict, and that is between the age-old American ethic of the melting pot, assimilation, and immigrants becoming integral to aspects of American society and culture versus multiculturalism, which focuses on cultural differences and unique qualities, often to the exclusion of the melting pot. Is that conflict at play here? Yeah, I think in some ways it is. America would be a much less interesting, much less creative place if people had to kind of give up the culture that they brought to this country. It wouldn't be America at all. But I also think that politically, Americans know that the Democratic Party celebrates diversity. What the American public doesn't always know enough, and Democrats need to remind Americans sometimes, is that the Democratic Party also celebrates unity, that they also believe in an Americanness that brings us all together despite our cultural differences. I think there's a reason that Barack Obama's statement in the 2004 Democratic Convention is one of the best remembered of his phrases. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Coming from a Democrat, that was an important statement in a time of so much division. If the Democrats do as you say and are more nuanced in the rhetoric about immigration, will they then not face the perception that they have been pushed to the right by Trump and Trumpism? That's possible, but – when you lose an election, even an election like this where, you know, Hillary Clinton actually won more votes, you have to adapt. You know, it's, it's a matter of political survival. And that's what smart political parties do. They find a way of remaining true to their core moral principles, but find new language and new strategies for getting a political majority. You know, we've had a pretty high rate of immigration now in the United States since the 1960s, and it has really made America a very different country. I think a better country, but a very different country, and it's coincided with growing economic inequality, which has produced a kind of backlash and resentment that Democrats can call racist, some of it is racist, but politically, they have to find answers for it acknowledging some of the strains rather than trying to pretend they don't exist and finding a set of policies and a message which talks about how America can become stronger and more unified even as we become more diverse. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. I'm upset at you folks. Uh oh, not me. Is it me? No, not me. I won't take that. Are tweeting and commenting as to why black folks should be engaged in this conversation on immigration. Mm. I've seen a lot of conversations about, oh, Mexicans don't care about us and Latinos don't care about us and things like that. As if you haven't been paying attention in this last year, that one, not all immigrants are Latino. Right. Number one, there are Many um, Latinos are black. Many Latinos are ba- uh, black. And as you've seen, that was done to Haitians, uh, Hondurans, and others, right? And you see what's happening in Puerto Rico. Right. <laughs> and that's America. Right. That we all um, should be engaged in this conversation. Right. And there, it's important to know that black immigrants make up about 10% of the black immigration, of the black American population. Um, and that alone, the fact that one, they are so prevalent, and two, we have to remember 90 plus percent of the Africans who were stolen from Africa, kidnapped and dragged to be enslaved for life did not come to the United States of America. They went to Dominican Republic and Haiti. They went to Trinidad. They went to Brazil. They went to Venezuela, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and so Mexico. Um, so blackness, one, if we're talking about Pan-African, right, we're, this is something that has a broad impact on all of us. And when a cop sees you or I see you, they don't say, oh, you're the Jamaican. No, they say you're the black person. I'm going to find out your ethnicity, your, your nationality later. But they're seeing you and they're evaluating you, all, all of us, through the gaze of, of white supremacy as it views blackness. So it's really troublesome um, because as soon as they get rid of that 10% of the black population, there's the 90% of us who are all here who are still going to be targeted. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. It's and, and I know where this stems from, June. The, the, the conversation about this is stemming from is putting in, us in competition in terms of employment. Mm. And so for a number of people, the conversation is, well, if you, you know, if you care about changing the black unemployment rate, then you would be, you know, for uh, or against immigration or some sort of um, Mm -hmm. uh, amnesty for immigrants in this country as well, as if directly by getting rid of all the immigrants in this country that would immediately employ Raycon and Keisha now. Ask them if Raycon and Keisha are going to go out there and do what half them are actually doing because most of us are not going to. Mm. And it's not just black folks, it's just American Folks, period. period. We're uppity like that in the mind. Like, oh, I'm not going to pick no lettuce. 
But you got to get out. Let us pick her. Right. But, but, and then it's also because even in that conversation, in terms of the vast majority of immigrants and marginalized people in general do jobs that people that have advanced degrees and others do not. Right. Right. So it's not just an issue of immigrants doing that job. It's also people because poor whites do those kinds of jobs as well. It's not having access to uh, higher education, not having access to greater technical training, or even being in an area where those things exist, where people are then resulting to those particular low-wage, unskilled unskilled labor jobs. And not for nothing, but if you're in a city like New York or Florida, which are the two top places where black immigrants um, tend to be located in the country... um, these are job creators many times. Yeah. There are many, many, many blocks in the Brooklyn space where if you don't have access to black immigrants who are opening stores, opening shops, opening restaurants, you will have an underserved community that is not going to have and other blighted pl- blocks. Blighted blocks. And so they are they're bringing industry and commerce to many black communities because nobody else wants to live around us unless they're gentrifying us. And two, they're often employing black Americans or native born black people who are black people who are born here into the spaces that they've opened up for commerce. So, I mean, it's a, we have to be way more pan-Africanist in how we approach these types of conversations because Marcus Garvey, you know, like all of these people were able to do, I mean, there are many, many, many African nations right now that exist drawing on the legacy of what Marcus Garvey was doing here and what he was doing as he was traveling. And so setting up that model, you know, when we're talking about a, a president who's saying we live in all, you know, S-hole countries, if anything, our responsibility is to make sure we pull us all out of the S-hole. And that includes making sure that we have a pan-African perspective when it comes to immigration. Or not even thinking that the the resources that were actually stolen from those mm. countries and everything actually helped propped up right. the countries that are now financially um, these big mega uh, yeah. yeah. History is like a real thing, but nobody ever really looks at or reads or studies history. So here we are, because right. the bottom line is, like you talked about Marcus Garvey, if those type of stories and those things were out front for people to understand and learn from, then people would make different choices. But the right. whole unlearning from white supremacy is so deep, so ingrained. We're going to be at this for a very long time, y'all. the most long-lasting impact, for instance, of American wars in Syria, Iraq, and the rest of the Middle East is the refugee problem. After so many years of constant warfare, the people of the Middle East suddenly started leaving. They couldn't take it anymore. And so now Europe is trying to, is obviously the first one to deal with this, this problem because they're the closest place that people can go, but it's also throughout Africa, you're seeing huge uh, numbers of both people leaving war-torn countries. That's what they're leaving. They're leaving countries where they can no longer maintain themselves in any kind of way. So these massive refugee problems now are a direct result of imperial wars uh, over the last 10, 15 years in these areas. Previously in the United States, there were all the Central American wars, all the interventions of the United States in Latin America that forced all of these Salvadorans and Guatemalans and Hondurans to come to the country, to this country in the 80s. So you've got to understand that, one, the United States is not alone in this problem. But number two, the United States has a particular 
history as a country that often has identified itself as an immigrant nation, that immigration has always been a big political battleground in the United States, always. And uh, because there's always an attempt by those who came a while ago to portray those who came more recently as part of the problem, whether it was the Irish in the 1840s with the Know Nothing Movement, the Chinese in the 1880s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, whether it was the Polish and the Russian Jews and Italians in the late 1800s and early 20th century. But now what really has made the, the situation more difficult now is that there's not only a cultural and ethnic component to the migration, there's a a racial component to the migration. And so now you're increasingly dealing with the reality that the bulk of the migration to the United States over the last 50, 60 years, half of it has been from Latin America and uh, two-thirds to three-quarters. The rest of it has been from Asia and Africa. Remember back in 2006, (laughs) there was an attempt to pass a comprehensive immigration reform. Good evening. I've asked for a few minutes of your time to discuss a matter of national importance, the reform of America's immigration system. The issue of immigration stirs intense emotions. Why has it taken so long? Well, because this, the final immigration legislation that is passed will essentially define who is legitimately in the United States in the 21st century. It is really going to define the composition of American society. Everybody who's involved in the negotiations knows that. There are big stakes here in terms of who gets to be elected to office in 10 or 15 years, you know, how the resources of the country are are divided up. And it's really a question is who is legitimately in the country. The fascist trend represented by Trump wants to totally reverse immigration policy to instead of saying, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, give me your best educated people who have the most money, who can buy, essentially buy their way into the United States, either as a graduate student working in Silicon, uh, for Silicon Valley. Or, or an investor in one of Kushner's companies. Or yes, or an investor in one of Kushner's companies. You are essentially now, the trend is to buy your way into the United States, to get people who were educated in India or China uh, or some other, or Mexico, where those governments invested in their education, but then the United States stole the brains, right? Essentially bought the brains. Uh, and those countries invested in their education, but they didn't get the benefits of their education. Trump calls it chain migration. The official term is family reunification. They want family reunification out because that would only allow the already existing working class migrants who have already become legalized to bring more of their relatives. They want to end that. They want to bring in a whole different type of migration into the United States. And I suspect also increasingly make it a wider migration. The dreamers are like the the sexy part of the migration reform. What is going to happen to the technological workers? What is going to happen to the uh, the agricultural uh, workforce, uh, which is still needed? They still need agricultural laborers to pick the crops that pe- you know, people in the United States are going to eat. Under what conditions will these other categories of migrants be able to come into the country? You, of course, as NAFTA was coming to fruition, were reporting extensively on uh, the potential outcome of this. At the end of the day, your political analysis – and correct me if I'm wrong – 
ends in the same place as Trump's when it comes to wanting to get rid of these kinds of uh, of so-called free trade agreements, but for very different reasons. I'd like to hear your critique of how NAFTA and other so-called free trade agreements impact workers in the United States, but also in other parts of the hemisphere. Remember, NAFTA was passed under Bill Clinton. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone and create 200,000 jobs in this country by 1995 alone. NAFTA and all of these free trade agreements were based on being able to exploit the huge gaps in income that already existed in the world. They were going to take advantage of that, not to necessarily raise the income levels, but just to take advantage. It's like a currency trader who tries to trade between the differences of values of currencies between countries. That's all it was. And so unless there is somehow in the policy a commitment to close the income gaps between countries, and not just the income gaps, the gaps over environmental controls, the, the gaps over protection of workers' safety uh, in these places. It will always, there will always be a race to the bottom, to which country offers the cheapest labor and the worst environmental regulations and the worst labor safety. You know, no, now it's no longer Mexico or even China. Now it's Vietnam and, and Bangladesh. And there'll always be another country where the elite will offer you a better deal in the race to the bottom. Would you celebrate the dismantling of NAFTA, even if it was based on Trump's rationale or motives for it? Well, it's definitely good that the that these agreements are being revisited. The question then becomes, though, uh, who negotiates the new ones? You know, because eventually any trade agreement has to go through Congress. And with the, the makeup of Congress now, you could conceivably have a worse trade agreement for the, especially for the people in these other countries than you have now. It's positive that at least what Bernie Sanders raised about uh, these trade deals during the campaign and what Trump raised about these trade deals at least broke the control over the debate that the globalists in American capitalism, along with the media, had that anybody who raised a criticism of these debates was crazy or a fringe. Uh, so that's changed. That's changed. People understand now that these trade deals have been uh, have hurt the American workers and have hurt the people in the countries where they were developed. I was recently looking back at your excellent book, uh, Harvest of Empire, that also has been revised. And it made me start to think how so many people in this country, when they talk about immigrants or when they talk about undocumented immigrants or people who are here with protective status or people who were brought here uh, by their parents and they didn't have documentation, we never talk about why people have come here from uh, any number of these countries. Give an overview of the harvest of empire and – why people started migrating from south to north 
at different points in history? Well, I think the basic thesis of, of my book, Harvest of Empires, you really cannot understand the massive growth of the Latino population in the United States uh, in the second half of the 20th century and the early 21st century, unless you understand the role of the United States in Latin America in the late 19th and early 20th century. That, in fact, the 50-some million Latinos now living in the United States are a direct result of the United States' creation of an imperial empire in Latin America. And, in fact, the United States is not alone. The reason there are so many Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans in France is because those were the colonies of the French Empire. The reason there are so many Indians, Pakistanis, and Jamaicans in England is because those were the colonies of the British Empire. Uh, the reason there are so many Turks in Germany is because Germany got laid into the imperial power game and after World War I basically absorbed the Ottoman Empire and began going into Turkey and other places in the Middle East. But what basically what happens is that World War II was a seminal moment in the colonial world because all of the powers in World War II all impressed their colonial soldiers into the war. The French drafted the Algerians and the Tunisians into the French army. Uh, the Americans drafted Puerto Ricans and Mexicans. My father and his two brothers all served in a Puerto Rican regiment uh, in World War II that was attached to Patton's 7th Army. They were all recruited right out of Puerto Rico, not even speaking a word of English, to fight in World War II. Even African-Americans who came up from the South, a lot of them were impressed into World War II. So the result was, after the war was over, the soldiers who returned all became the leaders of their independence movements of their civil rights movements. If you look at all of the people in the civil rights movement in the United States, many of them were World War II veterans. Uh, in the same thing in the Mexican-American community, in the Puerto Rican community. They came back having been trained and fought in World War II and said, hey, we just defeated fascism, but we don't have rights in our own country. After World War II, you get the huge surge of African independence and Pakistan and India. They're all, all the colonial powers are forced to give up their colonies. But then, because these countries had already established routes of trade and commerce and information with the metropolis, the, suddenly people started leaving their countries and going to the metropolis. Algerians started going to France and Tunisians and Indians and Pakistanis started going to England. And people who came to the United States were largely from countries that were already directly intervened, like Puerto Rico or Cuba, Dominican Republic and Mexico. And then, of course, Nicaragua, Salvador and Honduras. So basically, you can directly trace the mass migrations of every imperial power in the world to their former colonies. So that's why I say that the Latino presence in the United States is the harvest of the American empire. For the first 150 years, the colonial powers tried to get the resources, the gold or the, or the copper or whatever resource they could get out of the colonies. But then what they never expected was that the people themselves would come, that the workers would start using those same routes of trade to migrate to the metropolis. Had the West not try to dominate the entire world <laughs> and colonize the entire world. It would not be facing the kinds of migration situations that they're facing now. And the people just at a certain point said, hey, 
we may as well go to these countries if we're considered to be subjects of these countries. And so uh, during the 20th century, the third world stood up and became independent, but still is economically controlled by the West. And now gradually at the late stages of the 20th century and early 21st century, the workers of the third world started coming to the West. And now capitalism is faced with the problem, how can you argue for no barriers to capital, for whether it's a money transfer, whether it's an investment opportunity, whether it is uh, lowering tariffs on trade. How can you argue that we're in a global world and capital must be free to move anywhere it wants at any time and labor can't? How can you argue for freedom for capital but not freedom for labor? And when the reality is that more people are on the move today than ever before in the history of the world. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers of Filipinos and, and other people that are basically propping up the economies of the Middle East, you know, and the numbers of Koreans that are working in Japan, there's been mass migrations, not just in the United States, but all over the world, labor is in motion. And you cannot continue to lower the barriers for capital while erecting walls <laughs> against labor. It doesn't make any sense. So I think that's the quandary that global capitalism has today. How do you make it easier for business to make money while you're, you try to make it harder for workers to make money? It seems, given everything that you've just described, that there are two main drivers of undocumented immigration to the United States from the South, either wars and conflict that the United States has played a, a direct role in, or People have shattered economies that have been targeted by neoliberal economic positions of the United States, by the corruption of dictators who have been backed by the United States, or that their countries have been pressured into very bad deals for their people, and they're coming seeking economic opportunity. And I mean, every single person that I know that is undocumented in this country is an incredibly hard worker who is living in a crappy situation and sending a lot of money to support a lot of other people in their oh, home sure. country. I and, mean, that, that is well, almost the that. exclusive story that I, I know. Migration is itself a self-selecting process because the people who leave are usually the most industrious, the most willing to take risks. So basically, the very process of migration is it selects out the most industrious, hardworking, and risk-taking people. So to portray them as the people who are going to commit crimes and destroy the society is completely at odds with the facts. One of the things I raise in Reclaiming Gotham, which is that it's been documented that sanctuary cities in the United States have lower crime rates than non-sanctuary cities. It's firmly established that the crime rate among immigrants is far lower than the crime rate among U.S.-born citizens. <laughs> There's a lower crime rate. And yet you want to find the examples that you can find, because you'll always find examples of people committing crime in any, in any group in the society, and elevate those to the norm rather than to realize that they are the exception. You 
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, demand your members of Congress defend DREAMers and pass a Clean Dream Act. Activist groups have come together to defend DREAMers and demand a Clean Dream Act, and now they have made it incredibly easy for you to do the same. Groups including Indivisible, United We Dream, the National Immigration Law Center, Democracy Spring, NRDC, Credo Mobile, and many more have banded together to launch DREAMERPledge.org. This website is essentially a simple and effective one-stop shop tool for voters to find out how their members of Congress voted when it comes to dreamers and provides call scripts to help you either thank them or tell them just how furious you are. There are scripts for talking to Republican and Democratic members of Congress, and they're written to specifically respond to the passage of the most recent continuing resolution bill that did not include the DREAM Act, the one that ended the government shutdown. As you may have heard, Democrats said they would not vote for that bill unless it included the DREAM Act. And then many of them caved. The call scripts help you clearly demand that your Democratic and Republican members of Congress vote against the upcoming February 8th continuing resolution unless it protects DREAMers in order to avoid complicity in Trump's racist policies. Let's take this moment to remember that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have been promising to reach a deal with Trump to protect DREAMers since last December. Well, now it's February and DACA expires just one month from now. Trump has has vowed to deport DACA recipients when the program ends on March 5th, so there is no time to be congenial and make concessions. The Trump agenda is not business as usual, and members of Congress, especially Democrats, need to respond appropriately. It's baffling that Democrats have wavered since they know full well that Trump and Republicans have miscalculated this one. According to multiple recent polls, the vast majority of Americans support allowing DREAMers to stay in the U.S. According to a Politico morning consult poll conducted last September, over 69% of Republicans and 84% of Democrats think DREAMers should be allowed to stay in the U.S. They differ only on whether they should be allowed to become citizens or just legal residents. The only thing that can stop Trump from ripping lives apart is passage of the DREAM Act, so head over to DREAMERPledge.org and tell Congress to defend DREAMers today before it's too late. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if stopping Congress from codifying conservatives' racist policies is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding your members of Congress pass a Clean Dream Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. The next update has to do with immigration, a burning topic, never more so than these days as the Trump administration tries to deflect people's upset about the economic and political realities of our society by acting as though getting rid of immigrants is going to solve much. So let's talk a little bit about immigrants. First of all, this notion, which I need to deal with, 
that we ought to have immigrants that are highly educated rather than immigrants that are not. Let's go into that. Number one, it's bizarre coming from Mr. Trump, who wants to make America great again, because if America was great, because that's what it means to make it great again, then it had to do that greatness with a flow of immigrants, the likes of which no other country on earth has ever had. So when we were great, it was we were a country of immigrants. And guess what? From the beginning, the overwhelming majority of immigrants had no formal education whatsoever. They were uneducated people. And it took the United States to show the world that you may be uneducated in some ways, but you have lots of ingenuity, lots of skill, lots of commitment, and lots of hard work that can make a country great. What in the world is the lesson you draw from that? It's not the one you hear in the newspaper. But there's another economics of immigration I want to drive home. Let's suppose the United States were successful in getting educated people to come into the United States. Let's go over what that means. The country in which you are born and in which you go to school spends a great deal of money providing you with an education. It is very expensive to have schools, hire teachers, provide learning materials, etc., etc. What in the world do you think we're doing to, to the rest of the world if we outsource the costs of education to every other country in the world and then say when you get to be 21 years of age or 25 or 30, then you come to the United States? The other country bears all the costs of giving you productivity and the United States gets the benefit of all the productivity you provide when you work. That's a way of making a rich country, the United States, richer, and the poor countries from which these educated people come even poorer. They, they have to bear the costs of the education, and they don't get the benefit because the person leaves. That's a real serious problem, and it has been a serious problem for a long time. To act as though there's no cost to the rest of the world means that you're going to make the inequality in the world between rich and poor countries worse by this sort of immigration. Take everybody. Otherwise, you haven't learned the lessons of history and you're not doing the world right now any good whatsoever. We've just heard clips today, starting with Richard Wolff describing the systemic economic causes of migration. The other Washington discussed the economic benefits being felt in Seattle thanks to their large immigrant population and welcoming policies. On the Media took a look at the shift in rhetoric we've seen from Democrats on immigration from a more protectionist stance to a more strongly pro-immigration stance. Sunday Civics explained the necessity for solidarity against racist immigration policy. Intercepted spoke with the co-host of Democracy Now! Juan Gonzalez about the hidden forces behind global immigration trends. Our activism for today is in support of the Dreamer Pledge Project. And finally, we just heard Economic Update make one final case for the fact that our own national history shows the benefits of a more open immigration policy, not just for us, but for the world. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And 
now we'll hear briefly from one of you. Hi, Jay. How are you? Jeff Kong from Charlotte. I let you a message on a previous show. I'm weighing in on your episode you did where you're talking about fairness in voting and that, and, uh, and you were mentioning about gerrymandering. And several people suggested this ranked voting system or tier where you so many people vote on the top XYZ candidates. It sounds good in theory, but I am very much concerned because one thing we do know is Republicans and conservatives stick together and those who are progressive have a tendency to look far outside of the box. As a result, many of many of your Democratic voters could probably end up supporting multiple candidates to water down the the votes where the top two vote getters are conservatives. In the race you may have five or six progressives, but you'll have two conservatives. And those two conservatives get most of the votes. So as a result, although it sounds good, sounds ideal to have multiple choices more than one, it could actually work against the progressive party. Thank you very much. And I enjoy your show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick response to Jeff uh, about ranked choice voting. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I may be misinterpreting Jeff's comment. It's possible Jeff is misinterpreting ranked choice voting. I'm not sure which, but what he said didn't sound right to me. So I'm just going to start fresh and do a quick explainer. Uh, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting and or uh, what is sometimes called instant runoff voting. And what Jeff is describing, a, a vote being split like that, is exactly the problem that ranked choice voting is designed to counteract. So with his, you know, four different uh, progressive candidates all running, splitting the vote that way, that's not how ranked choice voting works. You, you wouldn't just vote in a spread out way like that and then have all of those votes, you know, sort of working against each other. With ranked choice voting, the idea is that you can actually vote for multiple candidates. And so you actually rank them as the name implies. You pick your your first choice, second choice, third choice. And that then allows for if your first choice doesn't win, if they don't automatically win in the first uh, sort of a round, like it happens instantaneously, but it's like multiple rounds of voting. So if your candidate doesn't win the first round, then that vote is uh, transferred. It's not discarded. It's transferred to your second choice. And then if that second choice candidate doesn't get, you know, as, uh, you know, doesn't get at least second place in the total voting, then again, 
your vote would transfer to your third choice. So, you know, for instance, let's say you wanted to vote for, you know, Jill Stein was your first, uh, you know, first choice. And then like Bernie Sanders as a write-in candidate was your second choice. You might have then chosen Hillary Clinton as your third choice. And depending on what state you're in, that may or may not have made a difference. But at least on the national level, that that's how that could work. So you can vote for the out there candidate who, uh, you know, you, you believe in the most, but who doesn't have a good chance of winning. And your vote can still be counted on the side you more prefer it to be counted on. So part of the argument is that someone out there who, you know, votes green out of, you know, sheer determination to have their pure vision expressed through their vote can still do that. And if they would uh, like to say, yes, and also I would prefer a Democrat versus a Republican, they can say that too. So they can, they can get their opinion across and they can not have their vote discarded. So uh, the hope is that you will actually encourage more people to vote because it'll be a less discouraging action to take. If you don't believe in the the two major parties and, and you feel like, well, I'm only given these two choices and then and if I don't pick one of these, they say I'm throwing my vote away, well, screw the whole system, you know. But with ranked choice voting, that's not the case. Hopefully that makes sense. I mean, I'm trying to use the example to uh to clarify. I don't know if I muddied the waters or or cleared them up. But the essential takeaway is that Jeff's concern about a vote being split and conservatives being more willing to coalesce around, uh, you know, one person, uh, that shouldn't be a problem with ranked choice voting. That, that's actually exactly the problem the system is trying to solve. Uh, secondly, today, just in case you missed it, I wanted to highlight that right there at the end of the show, Richard Wolf was talking about the need to look at global inequality rather than just domestic inequality. And I got to say, when, you know, when I heard that clip uh, during my research and we had just been talking about uh, that issue, that that sort of anti-non-American bigotry, the, the idea that we are so myopically focused on America and American policy and what's happening within our borders and especially when it comes to things like inequality, economic inequality, and so forth, that we don't even think, oh, right. And what happened? You know, if we make the argument that society is better when society is more equal, and that's why we shouldn't have a 0.1%, uh, you know, get gaining such a large portion of our economic pie while the rest of us get the rest, um, the same argument could be made for the entire world, and the U.S. is definitely that top one percent of uh, you know economic earnings in in the in the world. So there's a huge wealth disparity between rich and poor countries, and that is detrimental to society. So I, I was glad that uh, that he pointed that out, and it flowed nicely with our conversation from the last episode. And then my last point, just more broadly today, just for some background information, I listen to podcasts often on show days, like when I'm producing shows, dur during my breaks. You know, obviously not while while making the show. Uh, you got to focus then. But you know, I get up to have lunch or whatever, and I'll often listen to some non 
political podcast. So I was doing that today, and it just so happened what I was listening to was a little emotional. Uh, it was, you know, was a storytelling show. There were some emotions involved, and it, it put me in this contemplative mood <laughs> that I wanted to share with you. And so uh, I was thinking about the show and the process of the show and this sort of perpetual quest for knowledge. And the way I think about it often, or I was reminded of it today uh, by one of the clips, is that information often comes to us in in uh, you know bits and pieces sort of in a way if you you know move to a new city and you're trying to learn the layout of the city and you and you use primarily the subway to get around like if you if you've never lived in a city you might not have this experience but you can probably imagine my point so uh, you, you get around on the subway and so you go down into the station you take the train to where you're going to go and you come up out of the station and then you're in a new area and so in this way you can sort of learn the geography of a city based on what's around all these stations. And so on one hand, that's good. You know, you learn where the trains go and what's around each station, and that's fine. But that can also leave you with these huge gaps between stations. Because if you're always taking a train to get everywhere, you, you don't necessarily see how things connect, how the neighborhoods between one train station and another actually merge and blend into each other. Until one day, you know, you go for a walk and you take a route you don't usually take and you actually traverse that space between two areas and you can be familiar with both of the areas but not familiar with what's in between. And there's this strange moment when you realize that you you were somewhere you recognized and you walked through a place you didn't know about and then you came to the other end and you're like, oh, hey, I know this place. I've just never gotten here this way before. And it's it's a way of connecting the dots in a way. It's just a little magical. You just get this little feeling like, oh, I've I've learned something new about the interconnectedness of everything. And actually, I mean, that happens literally. That it's I think it's a nice metaphor, but it's also it, it happens literally. But in this case, I'm using it as a metaphor. So this is what I thought about when listening to the intercepted clip we heard today, uh, talking with Juan Gonzalez about the connection between global immigration and colonialism. You know, those are two things that I've got like a decently good grasp on. Like I obviously need to learn a lot more, but the interconnectedness between the two was something I had not, it just hadn't occurred to me. And, uh, and yeah, it was just, Fascinating. It was one of those really great moments, sort of an epiphany, uh, you know, a, a connecting of dots, a a filling in of the of like the gray space uh, in, in my, you know, on my map where uh, <clears throat> where I hadn't filled in the details. And it, it, it's in moments like that on, you know, on days like this, when when I'm able to take a step back from politics a bit and, and just sort of appreciate the quest for knowledge itself, enjoy the process of filling in those gaps with understanding. And then for that knowledge, this is the important part, for that knowledge in turn to help shade in the details, not just of your knowledge, but of your philosophy, your perspective on politics and policy. Um, I, I don't know if, if that is making sense to anyone else. This is sort of how I metaphorically envision um this like perpetual quest for information and understanding um but that you know that's sort of at least the idea that i'm trying to get across with the show and so i hope that uh you know when i do it right 
some of that comes through. Um, so, you know, maybe it makes sense, or maybe it doesn't, or maybe you prefer another metaphor. Uh, but speaking of all of this, I, I wanted to uh, bring back up the conversation that is in its infancy uh, getting started. Uh, callers in the previous episode, and unfortunately, that episode went out late due to technical difficulties. So I think people haven't had time to hear it and, and uh, have enough time to respond. But I just want to remind you that uh, people called in about the Me Too movement and uh, expressed concerns. I, th- I think Jeff from Cleveland might have been the same Jeff we heard from today uh, was, you know, basically expressing concern about uh, too many different types of assault and and uh, harassment and all these different gradients of sexual abuse. Ha- that conflating them can be dangerous. Uh, I have some thoughts on that, but I, I would really love to get input from you guys first to kickstart the conversation if you have thoughts on it. And then also there was a, a person who emailed that I told you about who was concerned about it's sort of the traditional concern about, uh, you know, what about the falsely accused? How do we go forward caring about people who are in need of support and believing women in that way? while also not going overboard and having a bunch of people have their lives ruined, being falsely accused. Again, I have thoughts on that. (laughs) I'm happy to share, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that first. So just a reminder, I want to extend the, uh, the time to chime in on that before I, uh, before I get into it. So keep those calls coming in. As I said, this quest for knowledge and greater understanding works best when we hear from more people and get more perspectives. So, uh, as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.